Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. I think of it as a, kind of a thaw. Um, folks go from being frozen up, literally, um, and emotionally, to um, being able to say, man, I, this is this is what I'm experiencing and have others say, yeah, we understand. We're, we're right with you. When a civilian enters any branch of the military, they go through a period of basic military training that's designed to change the way they think and act to turn them into a soldier, sailor, Marine, airman, or coast guardsman. This is seen as an important time in the individual's life critical for the proper transition from being someone not in the military to part of one of the greatest fighting forces on the planet. After a period of time in the military, however, there's little done in any branch of the service to help that service member transition their mindset to life as a veteran. As we often say here in the Change Your POV podcast network, after one leaves the military, they're never going to be a civilian again. And they're no longer a service member. They're this entirely different third thing, a veteran, with all the experiences, knowledge, strengths, and challenges that go along with that word. One of the most overlooked aspects of transition is a service member's mental health and wellness. If the veteran has their heart, mind, body, and spirit in the right place, and has a support network of family and friends to rely upon, then they're most likely going to have a successful transition. Those things are not in place. Things can get challenging. I'm your host, Dwayne France, and I'm going to take you through a veteran mental health boot camp to give you some advanced training for your brain. These episodes will cover the many different aspects of veteran mental health that I, as both a combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor, see, experience, and support veterans with daily. I'm going to be joined by both veterans and mental health professionals talking about what you need to know about the stigma against seeking support, the different areas we need to understand, and provide some resources for when you think you might need them. Get up in the morning and out of the rack, because this is some information that could very well save your life. Welcome to Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp. Hey folks, welcome back to uh, the next episode of Headspace and Timing. I really appreciate you, as always, taking the time to listen. As you know, we're in the middle of this 
series looking at veteran mental health and the different aspects of veteran mental health uh, that go beyond PTSD and TBI. And if you've been listening uh, as the shows have been released, you know that we just got done talking about uh, PTSD and then traumatic brain injury with uh, Dr. Blair Cano. Uh, and as I'd mentioned in the first episode, as we're going to go through this, uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is substance abuse. And when I, uh, when I considered who I wanted to have on as a guest for substance abuse and veteran mental health, for me personally, uh, there was only one person that I knew um, that, uh, that would be able to talk to this situation. Uh, and this is somebody that I've known for several years and, and I respect immensely, uh, and that's uh, Dr. Stephen Kidd. So um, I'll let Dr. Kidd uh, kind of introduce himself and, and tell you a little bit about what he's doing before we get in the conversation. Dr. Kidd, welcome. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks for putting this together. This is great. Yes, uh, and, and thank you for uh, for joining us. Um, I know we've been trying to, to get together to to really spread the word about veteran mental health and substance abuse for a while, and uh, glad we were able to finally get this started. So uh, before we talk about that, I'd like to let you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and um, maybe what you're doing right now. Uh, sure. I've been with the VA for a long time, 27 years now, and um and since 1999, have been at the Colorado Springs community-based outpatient clinic. Um, and we, I was brought in to actually start a substance abuse program after um, they had not, Southern Colorado VA at the time, had not had a substance abuse program for a number of years after closing the one at Fort Lyon. Um, and so the challenge was creating a, an outpatient program that really met the needs of this uh, part of Colorado. Um, one of the th- one of the challenges right away that that I noticed is that there was um, no there were no uh, inpatient beds along the front range of Colorado, and um, we uh, from my from what I've experienced in VA in the past, uh, I knew that that was going to be a great necessity because homelessness and uh, substance use go hand in hand with veterans, and probably would be uh, they probably do in the rest of the population as well. However, um, a lot of homeless folks don't get treatment because they don't have insurance. So, um, uh, but in the VA, that's not a barrier. So. We see the 40% or so of our folks that come to us in pr- pretty dire straits um, also struggling with homelessness. So I knew that had to be part of the equation. So that's uh, where we nurtured uh, a relationship with uh, veterans in town who agreed uh, to start a nonprofit that became Crawford House, uh, Colorado Veterans Resource Coalition, where I first met you, Dwayne. And are working together with these these folks. So that's how I got here. Yeah, and and so uh, of course, being very familiar with um, uh, with the process in your program, and uh, I'm I'm going to do my best. No, I don't even know if I'm going to curb my enthusiasm, Doctor Kid. And I'll, I'll I've mentioned it to you, and I've told it uh, to many times um, before. Is that uh, I personally believe that your program. 
uh, is the best substance abuse treatment program in the Central Mountain region. Uh, having uh, seen it work with veterans, both my work in the Veterans Trauma Court and in my previous role uh, working with the, the Crawford House, um, just the, the program that you have uh, put together and developed, I have literally seen uh, save lives and change lives, and so I think it's amazing. Well, I, um, well we strive to be excellent and, um, and be and do what the vets need us to be and do, including um, not do what they're asking sometimes. <laughs> <But> <laughs> That's a... Normally, normally it's, uh, it, it's, it's providing a structure and providing a healing environment that I think is uh, really, plus the, uh, the kinds of, of content that we can teach that come out of the literature that, and linking up with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and the recovery, the, um, the recovery community that's uh, already there around us that I think um, uh, is all part of what we offer. Uh, my, my, my training in um, my training was as an intern, psychology intern in, uh, uh, at the Cincinnati VA, and they had a very strong inpatient model. Um, and um, I I experienced it as. Um, an extraordinarily safe and honest environment um, where we went beyond the staff went beyond just wanting to hear the patients parrot back um, what they should say but more what they honestly felt and that and when folks can get really honest uh, growth can happen generally um, it's not just one-on-one -on -one, though, but uh, creating an honest, uh, a sense of honesty and integrity in the group itself, um, where veterans are uh, communicating with veterans um, in a way maybe that they haven't, well, maybe that they've come short of anywhere except the battlefield, where things get very honest very quickly. Um, so uh, that, that seems to be a key ingredient to the healing environment. Um, that we've sought to replicate here in Colorado Springs. And, uh, and I definitely, I've, I've seen that, uh, again, as I've said, I've seen it work, um, it both um, a series of different uh, types of interventions, uh, individuals, groups, series of groups uh, in, in the intensive um, uh, partial hospitalized program. We'll get into that in a bit, but I'm interested to hear what really got you um and you said you interned at the VA, but, but what got you interested in veteran mental health and then substance abuse specifically as opposed to, you know, many of the other things you could have focused on? Uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. Well, I, I um, interesting question. I um, have addiction in, in my family background, which was, I think, part of um, what probably more subconsciously uh, drew me, um, so that's one factor. And then, secondly, the 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 staff at the VA. I, I wasn't just looking for a VA training, but the staff at the VA was extraordinarily cohesive. The psychologists there, from all all the different things that they were doing, um, was, was an extraordinary group. And so I was drawn to that. Uh, 
that sense of teamsmanship among them, and then um, and then once getting there, the program um, as I experienced it, just tasted it um, in Cincinnati, drew me further. But I'm sure my my background was also a factor. Um, and then getting on that unit and and being part of the group therapy, psychodrama, all the different ways that they were intervening daily um, uh, was was an extraordinary revelation. In fact, I, I remember thinking, I've said this many times, that I need a group like this for myself. Uh, <laughs> I, I need to have my... I need to have my own recovery in a way. I'm just not used to people being so honest. Um, and um, uh, I, I could see the healing results right before me. Uh, so uh, so, there was, so it was a personal draw as well as a professional draw. And I had a, a magnificent teacher in uh, Sue Dearenforth, Dr. Sue Dearenforth, who went on to actually... Um, Beyond substance abuse, who went on to be to establish the National Center for Organizational Development for the VA in Cincinnati, uh, which meant that she was working with work groups, she was working with groups to uh, smooth out relationships, um, uh, conflict resolution, those kinds of things that uh, can be transformative to a group of people who have been at odds, etc. She loved, so she brought a lot of those skills to a substance program initially in her career. And I got to be, I got to be in on it. I feel very lucky for that. And that's, uh, you know, even that evolution, uh, taking a look at that, um, you know, going from just interest and then getting drawn in, you know, um, that's, that's something that I think, you know, we, we veterans can find that even after the military, you know, something to interest them and then gets drawn in. Uh, so that's it's great to hear that. One thing I, I think that's interesting is you've seen spans between, you know, uh, the pre 9-11 and the post 9-11 veterans. You know, you, you started um, the program here in Colorado Springs, um, you know, a couple years before. And so you were seeing veterans. um it maybe more non-combat veterans, Cold War veterans, and things like that. But when it specifically with substance abuse, have you seen it change over the last 15, 18 years? Oh yeah. So the yeah when I when we first got started, um, we saw, still saw a fair amount of, and we still do see a fair amount of Vietnam veterans, as that's still such a large class, still the largest cohort that the veteran that the VA serves. Um, so it was older vets. Uh, we weren't used to seeing kids around the clinic, uh, young families, and that's been the big change. After probably about 2002, 2003, we began seeing Iraq and Afghanistan vets just trickle in. Um, still very much the minority of the folks we were working with, whereas now they're definitely the majority, and we're hearing a fair amount of um, tales about combat and significant losses and significant conflicts that, that occurred that were scarring, uh, where um, 
substance abuse has been part of the answer to managing those emotions and those memories. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to to have these uh, conversations at least uh, very close together with PTSD and TBI um, with substance abuse because in and in in the model uh, that I talk about um, they're separate and distinct but they're not nearly separate and distinct I mean it's just sort of a way of talking about it and they're they're very intertwined in which right. substance abuse and and the use of substances becomes. Um, one of the ways that uh, the veterans have tried to solve the problem. It's interesting, though, that you right. you said that it was Vietnam veterans, and in the late '90s or the mid '90s, it's now 25 years removed from um, the veterans' combat experience. Whereas in 2002, you're a couple of years, and in, in many ways, months um, from a veterans' combat experience. Veterans are reaching out sooner than decades after combat I think so and I think uh, um, VA and, and uh, which actually I, I believe it was congressional approval but VA wanted to do a better job of reaching combat vets um, with this generation and so they placed VA staff uh, and military um, uh, posts and, and bases to help with the transition, they they did um, compensation and pension exams while they were still active duty. There's been a lot more coordination between VA and DOD in this with this generation than there was, and consequently, VA is sometimes criticized for not being prepared for the influx, but our our history was that, um, I don't know if you've heard the statistic, but that 20% of Vietnam veterans sought VA care. So 80% of them were in the private sector and um, uh, and getting their health care that way. Well, with this generation, 50% are seeking VA care. And I remember when the, I remember when the question was, how are we going to uh, draw these folks to VA, uh, that's no longer the question. No one's asking that question anymore. It's more how we're going to cope right. with um, with the influx because it, it was it's been so much more than we expected um, based on history. Well, and that's and uh, you know even if that's the elephant in the room, um, as you well know personally, that I am a, a, a significant supporter of the VA. I'm not somebody who's going to you know, abash the VA. Um, I, I feel as though um, that, uh, and I often say it, this is the skis that veterans are going to be going down the mountain on. I mean, this is the VA, you know, once it starts to uh, work um, uh, for a veteran, it works well. And then there's aspects where the community can come in and support, which is really my role. Uh, but the VA of now is not the VA of 10 or 15 years ago, even, much less the VA from right. five years from now is not going to be VA, VA of today. Um, therapeutically, we say, you know, we're doing the best we can and we can do better um, individually in therapy, but also that's really uh, in the VA as well. 
and and so your program uh, and and you and your staff specifically, um, when I speak to veterans in the community here, is an example of um, dedicated professionals that that are within the VA that are you know simply doing not even the best that they can. Yes, the best that they can, but some very good work. So. Um, I, I agree. I totally agree. Um, and having grown up with that, and my, my father was a Vietnam veteran, and I saw the evolution of services from the VA from, from when he was there in the 80s and 90s, and then even when I had joined the military, looking at it from afar. Uh, so uh, the the program is evolving. Now, with substance abuse Specifically, what do you think the challenge that veterans face regarding substance abuse that's maybe separate from PTSD? I mean, it's not, you know, it, it, you mentioned homelessness before, but um, you know, people will, will see a, a homeless veteran, you know, maybe they're flying a sign or something, and they'll say, oh, he must have PTSD. Um, it's more likely that he has other mental health concerns and substance abuse than PTSD. Uh, yes, and I always the the first question I I always ask when I see someone saying I'm a I'm a homeless veteran with a sign I I wonder if that's really the case because well, if they're an eligible veteran we have a lot of services they can take advantage of at the VA so I've been known to ask I, Have you been to the VA <laughs> Have you checked out um, and of course, so I, so I'm always a little suspicious. Hate to say that, but um, uh, because if they're eligible, we can get them off the streets pretty quickly. Um, uh, so, uh, what your your question was about homelessness and how those things intertwine uh, with PTSD is that or or as much I mean. At? Yeah, substance abuse. What are what are some of the substance abuse concerns um, that you see in veterans? Maybe trends, maybe the overarching uh, aspects of. And when we talk substance abuse, I was speaking to a veteran recently, um, and he says, "So I don't have substance abuse. I just drink too much." You know. So there's that. <laughs> and so so maybe just really dive into what what is considered substance abuse when it comes to veteran mental health and things like that. Um. Well, we're, we've gotten better at defining uh, what's um, basically social drinking versus hazardous drinking. Um, and most of the vets that come to us are way into hazardous drinking. They're coming to us with a problem, right? Um, or um, have an opiate addiction, which is just what a scourge. Uh, or, or methamphetamine. Those seem to be the top three right now. We do get some folks, even though cannabis is legal, we get folks that are saying, you know, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm wasting my life on this stuff, just staying numb all the time. Um, and I want help with cannabis. So, um, I guess those are the top four, uh, that we're seeing. Uh, um, and all of it, even so, you think of you think of opiates and you think of alcohol as downers, and uh, methamphetamine and cocaine as uppers. Um, but all of it is in the service, uh, whether downers or uppers, seems to be in the service of numbing uh, problematic emotions. 
um, that we associate with PTSD, unmanageable um, emotional states. And um, so that's, that is the dominant model, I think, the, the way that we think about it. There's been a debate in the literature about which comes first, substance abuse or PTSD. And um, I think with with some of the uh, early childhood, averse childhood events, um, literature that has emerged in the last 10, 20 years, um, we're much more aware of uh, early events that set people off that may not lead to a diagnosis of PTSD, but may lead to an addiction. Um, where folks are trying to cope with um, patterns that were set early on, even um, before any kind of military service, uh, and a lot of folks these days, because it's um, because military service is uh, voluntary, um, many folks are entering the military to get out of a family situation um, that is non-optimal. Um, so. We've learned to appreciate those factors as well as uh, um, uh, what happens in combat. No, I, I appreciate that you, uh, that you brought that yeah. out. And, and um, is that's something that's a theme that emerges as far as uh, the military. The military is as much a running away from something as it is running away, uh, running towards something. Uh, and in my experience, it's not just the veteran itself, but uh, maybe a young spouse, um, you know, so a, a young hometown guy and, and his hometown girl and may she may be running from a, a, a less than optimal um, living experience. And so now you have two 18, 19 year old kids trying to live life um, that, that bring in what they have from their childhood. Right. And then you you said that the um, that drinking and opiates and then methamphetamines um, is really the primary three. In in my experience, or, or what I would see, um, is that the drinking uh, and even the opiates that starts while they're on active duty. There's a there's a certain culture of um, I, I, I was 18 years old in Germany, you know, um, and, and there was, you know, the, the first time really away from home and you, you hear about, you know, going to Korea and, and, you know, all of these different things. So there's a culture, um, of permissiveness when it comes to drinking in the DOD and then opiates start with, uh, chronic pain and painkillers in the DOD. Um, and then in, in, I've said this before, I think you and I've had this conversation is, well, I was on active duty. We had veterans overdosing it with black tar heroin in the barracks. Um, you know, and not to make it sound melodramatic and like it was as, as severe as it was in the early eighties and, and late seventies, but it was still significant, um, that, that those two things really might have a, a genesis in the DOD. Do you see that? Sure. Right. The drinking culture, um, kind of learn that it's kind of a hallowed tradition is to uh, fight by day and, and drink by night or sometimes like in Vietnam it was the reverse fight by night and drink by, drink day. by day I yeah. think to, 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 to numb oneself um, uh, or to help cope with the aftermath um, of the officers club and those kinds of things uh, or not so uh, enlisted men's club um, and the use of opiates in Vietnam was was famous um, 
um, actually, because that was very much part of the culture there. So, um, and then our use of the, the entire medical community's use of opiates has really been being sold down the river in uh, in, in that by I, I blame the pharmaceutical companies uh, in part for um, their their inadequate really treatment of pain and uh, but pain is not well understood um, and maybe blame is not the right word uh, but the whole the entire medical community has really been sold a bill of goods about uh, the use of opiates for chronic pain um, and uh, and the dangers that now we're experiencing with um, people more people dying from opiate overdose drug overdoses than car accidents so uh, it's a, a terrible problem that we're really uh, I know the medical community is really working to reverse um, I've been to medical meetings where doctors are being rewarded for for um, <clears throat> counting how many folks have you taken off opiates and that could be done uh, not well as well. Um, so uh, part of part of my journey has been also to de develop um, some knowledge about the treatment of chronic pain and how that uh, needs to be a part of a recovery package for so many of my folks as well. Um, uh, getting off opiates and then learning how to how to work with their own chronic pain. Uh, which turns out not to be something that you can just give the pills uh, for. It's, uh, it has to be, uh, it involves a lifestyle change. And um, uh, it's much more complex than our primary care providers can often um, uh, supply in a 15-minute in a session. So, and, and that's the, yeah, that, that is the challenge in that, um, it is. It's it's harder work. It's more sustaining work for the veteran um, to to live in a uh, ultimately a pain free life. Um, it's more sustaining for them if they put in the hard work of changing their lifestyle and changing the way that they think and change their relationship with uh, substances. Um, where it's much easier um, to take a pill. Um, or it's much easier to give a pill, and so it, and that is the the thing is is uh, how do we get veterans to understand that um, in the long run they will be um, uh, better serve themselves and, and better serve their community by putting in the hard work than than the easy work. That's a, a difficult challenge to overcome. Right. right. It is. These are complex issues. Both body and mind are involved, and that's in 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 where you just said that the body and mind. And we talk about you had said several times about numbing, um, but it's it is about numbing physical pain. When we talk about chronic pain, um, you know, I have pictures of me overloaded like a turtle. Of course, you know, just the amount of of equipment and gear and jumping up and down and jumping out of perfectly good airplanes and all these different things. Um, you know, the, there's, there's more musculoskeletal um, uh, challenges as well as neurological pain receptors in the brain. So there's a physical pain component that veterans are using substances to numb. 
And then, of course, there's a psychological pain component, um, maybe even a spiritual when we talk about moral injury, um, that, uh, that the veteran may be, even going back to what you were talking about before, is the drinking culture in the military, it, it moves from being celebratory to a coping mechanism for physical and psychological pain, so to speak. Um, how do we differentiate between the two? Like, which is the, the challenge that the veteran, or, or is it a differentiation? It's both sides of the same coin. Let me just say, let me add on to what you said. So there was an important sociological, if that's the right, best word, uh, communal kind of uh, experience to drinking in the military. Um, that's when the group gathers. That's where the group uh, begins to decompress together. Uh, so there's a whole group process that um, happens um, around the, the that drinking culture um, that um, I think we need as human beings, but we're not very good at in this culture. We're an individualistic culture, and so so not only was drinking um, or using part of a psychic numbing, but it was also part of uh, coming together and not being alone, um, which uh, makes it even more powerful, and, But so so that the antidote or the, the, the lifestyle change needs to include that coming together, in my, in my opinion, and, and the literature bears that out. Substance abuse treatment generally um, is best done in a, in a group um, environment. Uh, my my experience is that it's multiplicative. Um, that the work we do in a group therapy session of seventy eighty minutes then uh, repeats itself afterwards when uh, when the group has lunch together or the group has enough. You know, I want to follow up on that com what you said about that. That's so much like my experience. Um, uh, so that um, networks are created and relationships are created that continue uh, far beyond the actual group session, the treatment session, uh, and it becomes a, a, an experience of community uh, that is extremely powerful and extremely healing. We find out veterans have been talking in, um, to each other and about stuff that they may not share with the whole group um, or they're even their therapist. Um, and that that's all part of the work and it makes it very efficient and, and very powerful um, to do treatment that way and, and when you're providing a psychologically safe environment. I think I veered a little bit off the, your question. No, but that's, it, but that's exactly, I mean, I, I, and, and that puts me in mind of the fact that substance abuse drives isolation. You know, when it when drinking goes from being a communal celebratory um, decompression kind of, you know, uh, a couple of beers with the guys and gals and then develops into more significant deep drinking in isolation. I'm not I'm not using it as a communal um, experience, but I'm using it as an isolating experience. Uh, and then if we get to opiates um, and methamphetamines, there's a shame component where I start to draw away from um, my my fellow uh, soldiers, the people that I used to serve with. I'll be honest with you. I've got, we call them the lost boys. I've got three or four lost uh -huh. boys from my platoon 
that nobody has really heard from or seen. Um, you know, and these were guys yeah. that we served together in combat that they just, they pull away. Of course, they're not on social media. They're, nobody's really sure exactly where they're at or what they've done. Uh, and, and we've lost some of our lost boys, um, gals, one specifically that I'm thinking of, um, uh, to <clears throat> substance abuse. And so it, there's the, where it can go from this community, but then it's in isolation. Uh, and, and even going back to what you had said before, it's hard to be honest in isolation because you're not looking at yourself in the mirror. No one else is telling you what they see. Um, and so it's sort of this, this trapped loop. Would that be accurate? Oh, sure, yeah. All right, kind of caught up in your own, own circular um, thinking and feeling that, and without some outside input or, or putting yourself out there or disclosing, verbally processing, uh, you just stay in these same patterns round and round and, and doesn't lead anywhere um, or just keeps you stuck or leads downward in, in terms of quality of life uh, living then, life according to where you what you had planned or what you wished for or dreamed of even if you never articulated it and then coming out of that isolation um, and, and what you said coming back into a group or a network or uh, the buzzword, and, and I think it's a, a very good one, tribe, you know, as they talk about it today. But just the, I think back into my military experience as, as I would, uh, you know, um, teach a, a certain block of instruction for an hour, an hour and a half. Um, and then, you know, the squad leaders would take their soldiers off and work on it again, you know, or, or you know, we, I recall before, uh, before I went to Afghanistan, um, I had uh, a couple guys in my platoon who had been in the region where we were going. We, we went out on a ruck march, and then we just had a talk about, you know, in a brief, me and the platoon leader showed, you know, some of the statistics and things like that. Then everybody broke down for chow, and then they were talking more about, you know, to those two or three guys. They, they like, kind of sat in groups. And, and so that's sort of a pattern of learning that, that veterans, that service members um, are familiar with um, and then the substance abuse pulls them out of that pattern even leaving the military might pull them out of that pattern um, but then the substance abuse pulls them out of that pattern isolates them and what I hear you saying is putting them back in that pattern um, can help not only draw them out of isolation but help draw them out of substance abuse mm-hmm. um, that's true I, I should add that we also see uh, some folks that come to us deeply ingrained in the subculture, um, uh, a negative, I would put, I would say it was a negative sub subculture, a drug subculture or a drinking bar subculture. These are, these, t these tend to be folks, not folks with PTSD, although we've, <laughs> we've seen some folks develop a negative subculture really around more antisocial behavior, thinking about um, motorcycle gangs and stuff that are are um, kind of um, well antisocial, I guess is the best word. Um, so, but uh, you're right. Generally, with folks with with PTSD, they're more they're more isolated. Uh, they've they've kind of withdrawn from uh, human society, and that keeps them sick. 
Now, you, you had mentioned before about um, not knowing, you know, there's some discussion in the literature, which comes first, the, 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 um, the, tra- the traumatic reaction um, or substance abuse. I'm, I'm of the opinion, you know, when you have a bunch of chickens running around, it didn't matter which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, but the one thing I really appreciate about your program uh, is that you don't just address substance abuse. You know, it's not just the substance abuse. You also address the underlying trauma um, behind it when there is, and, and, I, and I don't even necessarily say PTSD. There can be guilt, there can be shame, there can be lack of purpose and meaning. And some of these family issues, some of the things that we're talking about in this series, um, but you don't just address, hey, let's learn how to stop drinking. You and your program addresses the underneath component. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, I actually, I think uh, better, maybe a better way to put it is that we try to create an environment where where folks can address what they need to address. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some, it's the relationship with my wife, and she's that uh, switches on the brink, and that's why I'm here. Um, for others, it's the diagnosis that the doc. Uh, just gave me, which uh, means that I've got to stop uh, drinking or my liver is about gone. Um, Or for a significant number, um, as you're well aware, uh, it's the the legal trouble that I'm in. The judge told me to stop. Right. Right. I've heard this, uh, I've heard it said that uh, it's either your, your lover uh, your lawyer or your liver uh, are the three factors that send you into treatment. Um, and that seems like that's generally true. Um, uh, so we, we, we try to create an environment that, that is safe, emotionally safe, and where we're looking for folks to, um, to work on what they need to work on. Um, and it's interesting when the environment gets safe, what emerges um, for folks, um, whether it's a, a sense of shame over the, about their whole life, whether it's what happened to me as a kid, whether it's my current relationship, uh, whether it's my cravings and the intensity of them and managing them. Um, uh, it's, or it's that my addicted self and, and that I'm, um, it seems like, when I'm in the mode, uh, I'm a completely different person. I don't, I, I, and I don't follow the rules, and I don't, and I do what's wrong, what, what's not good for me. So, um, so that's the way we address them: is by encouraging, evoking, um, creating an environment where the veteran, him, him or herself, can say, "This is what I need to work on." I need to say this. Um, this is what's going on with me. And uh, one person in the group can tell it like it is for themselves, and it's amazing how that creates um, a domino effect where others say, yeah, I, well, I need to say this. And uh, being in the presence of someone who's being brutally honest leads to um, oftentimes um, most of the time, honesty from other group members. Sometimes, sometimes um, a patient that we get is really not ready to go there. They're really not ready to work on that level. They're 
um, the whole emotional vulnerability is they have a net, they have a opposite reaction to it. And you know, folks have to do their own process, and we try to gently help those folks be in another level of treatment um, if they're not ready for that level of honesty. Um, because it because it is a process, and people go through these stages of change that are well established in the literature. Um, and not everybody that comes to us is really at that uh, ready state to change. So that's also part of the treatment process. It's kind of figuring out where people are at and getting them where they need to be. Well, and I like how you said that is is creating an environment in which the veteran can work on what they need to work on. I think many times the veteran is not sure what that is. They come in uh, with this yeah. box or this duffel bag that they're dragging behind them. They don't know what's in it. They don't know why it's there. Um, and it takes uh, clinicians and the team that you've developed to be able to say, um, I understand, I can discern whether this is PTSD specifically you know there is a criterion a event and, and it is something trauma or whether this is more moral injury or this is a failure to meet your needs or this is this is x or y and so the the team that you've developed um understands the broad range of things with mental health and it just so happens that substance abuse is the gateway to treatment would that be accurate right yeah sure right uh, um we did a We've done an initial survey of uh, of our veterans over a couple of years, and 51% had PTSD. We had PTSD in their in their VA file. Um, not all of that's combat PTSD. Some of it's childhood or other kinds of trauma, or military-related sexual trauma. So um, that's a big component of what's going on, and. Um, uh, we have PTSD programs. We have very good PTSD programs in the VA, both outpatient and inpatient. Um, and we regularly refer folks to, the, to another program as a follow-up. But we consider what the work they do, being able to talk and talk openly um, about what they're what they're experiencing, um, to be the beginning point. Um, and for a lot of folks it is. We talk about men and feelings and this culture and, and the kinds of things that, that have that militate against us uh, doing this emotional processing that, that we so need to do um, and um, look for folks to become committed to doing that process even though it goes against every all their military and family training right? uh, to to talk about feelings instead of avoiding them and always trying to look good and uh, look together and uh, present the socially expected face, if you will. Um, so it's it's exciting work. It's, it's wonderful to watch folks. Um, I think of it as a kind of a thaw. Um, folks go from being frozen up, literally, um, emotionally to um, being able to say man I, this is this is what I'm experiencing and have others say yeah we understand we're, we're right with you 
and I think, and, and, and that's something even that, uh, that dual interaction or that group interaction, uh, this is something that has emerged um, in my discussion and several discussions um, uh, when I was talking about a couple episodes ago with uh, David Smith, he was a former Marine, uh, and, uh, and we were talking about internal stigma as a barrier to treatment. And he brought it out, and I, I've had it with a couple of other discussions of that there's almost a permissiveness that, that once a veteran receives permission from another veteran um, saying, you know, it's okay to talk about this, or it's okay to discuss your emotions, or it's okay to reveal this, once they get that permission from another veteran, um, then the process accelerates. Do you see that? Right. Uh, oh, very much so. Yeah, there's a modeling that happens um, uh, that's very exciting. About half of my staff are veterans, and about half of my staff are in recovery themselves. So you've got both of uh, modeling from both sides, um, and it's um, uh, it, it's it's such a privilege to be a part of creating. Environment, a healing environment where those kind of dynamics can happen interpersonally. Such and a privilege. That modeling was very important in the military um, as we uh, as we grew up. When I went to airborne school, I knew that the people who were instructing me jumped out of airplanes, right? The black hats. The as we go through basic training or boot camp or um, our, our advanced school, we know that the people that are teaching us. Um, have gone through it already and so there is that's the modeling aspect is something that veterans are familiar with Um, and then that might be another piece that's missing in their post-military lives Um, that it sounds like that you in 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 me knowing your program uh, and seeing your program but that's what you do is you provide an environment in which modeling can occur in a safe way exactly that's right whether it's staff to veteran or veteran to veteran, um, certainly it's true. So uh, as we wrap up here, Dr. Kidd, any other thoughts that you'd like to uh, share with the audience regarding um, substance abuse, veteran mental health, things like that? Oh, what a privilege to talk about my work um, and our work. Uh, it's really our work as a team. Uh, one one aspect of I could say of our of um, working as a team and kind of being the person responsible for monitoring how the team is doing is that if we want veterans to if we want to create this kind of environment for veterans, we also have to have that kind of environment as a team, um, and so. We want collaborative and supportive relationships with veterans and to enable them to have a safe place to explore what they need and what they need to work on and express that. That's, if we want veterans to do that, we have to be doing that as well among ourselves and our relationships with each other as uh, employees and um, as workers together. Um, and, and I learned that by watching my mentor. Um, uh, uh, create that kind of environment um, on the unit in Cincinnati, um, and she was followed up. She was following uh, 
psycholo- another great psychologist, Paul Diamond, who really established the program and established that kind of uh, environment initially. It, it, in one way, it seems like a fragile environment that, that something can happen and suddenly people are wary or untrusting or something like that. On the other hand, um, it, it's a... It, it's uh, it's a very powerful environment and it's a very stable environment. Um, uh, Stephen Covey, the, the, the son of Covey, wrote a book um, about um, the speed of trust, entitled "The Speed of Trust," and how uh, having a trusting environment uh, among people who are working together increases the efficiency so much more. And we've really found that to be the case. Um, is there's just a lot of stuff that goes on in the workplace that um, we, we we don't really have to deal with, um, and I feel very so I feel very lucky, um, and I feel very fortunate to work with the people that I do and um, be a part of this working environment and treatment environment, um, both, um, and it's been it's been a it's been a great experience. Well, and and I I hear in your words that uh, we, in 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 your team specifically as a group, but we as clinicians as a corporate group or or mental health professionals, especially those of us who are serving veterans, um, need to do our own work in development, um, awareness around what our blind spots are, and that's really the premise of this uh, this series of podcasts is to not only help veterans uh, understand more about these different aspects, but also help clinicians um, to, to understand, look, it's not just PTSD. It's not just traumatic brain injury. There's other aspects you need to pay attention to. Um, and, and that getting that work done or, or developing that work uh, can be very important. Now, it's, uh, it's amusing that you said uh, fragile, your fragile environment, and it's lasted for over 15 years, um, and and it's been you've gone through uh, some iterations, but um, uh, it's it's again, and, and I'll reiterate it. I tell veterans, especially veterans in the community, um, that if you are eligible for VA services and you can get in the VA, and substance abuse is a concern, and you're in Colorado, um, then the best place for you is. Uh, your clinic and your program. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about your work and, and sharing that with the audience. Well, thanks, Dwayne, and thanks for putting this together. I want to say one one additional thing, and that is uh, what you said about staff and supporting each other. When you're, as a staff, are dealing particularly with PTSD and some of the gruesome things that folks have experienced and have been uh, very reluctant to put those experiences into words, and sometimes you're the therapist who's hearing it for the first time. Um, you, um, some self-care is really important, but uh, uh, let me just say that I think one of the most important parts of self-care is having other colleagues that you can... Um, when I when I was uh, part of a post-traumatic stress clinical team in, my, the, in Iron Mountain, Michigan, before I came here, I was so fortunate to have... A colleague, where we it was both ways, and he was a Vietnam veteran. He'd been a he had been a corpsman in Vietnam, had his own stuff, but he had his own trauma, but also had, had dedicated himself to helping veterans. 
and he'd hear a story, and he'd need to come back, come next door and say, I just need to share this with you, and me the same way. Uh, there's a need to, I think, support each other as professionals um, that we sometimes neglect and think, well, we've got it all together, and we don't need that. No, we do. We, knew, we need it just as much as our, um, as our treatment recipients do. So isolation and, and you even alluded to it earlier in our individualistic culture um but isolation is not a good thing um in any sense um in, in many ways both with substance abuse and with 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 healing and, and supporting others and i think that's even important for veterans who may be listening to this too is you know we're all human um you know we we you know get up and you know feet on the floor and and head to the ceiling just like everybody else and and so um as we deal with these emotions uh, it's still there uh one of your staff um uh, very early on when i was working before had had identified me as a wounded healer and we talked very closely um at, at sort of at length about uh, young's archetype as a wounded healer um, and that uh, we have to heal from our wounds, whether old wounds or fresh wounds, before we can expect to heal others of theirs. Yes, and uh, helping others heal can be part of our own healing process, too. Uh, Bill W. said that in Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. that uh, the, the most important thing an alcoholic can do is help other alcoholics. In changing that identity from being a problem to being part of the solution, uh, being a profound shift uh, now, some of us can get lost in our helping and um, and get so into the helping role that we're, we lose track of our own wounds and our own pain. Mm -hmm. But usually life has a way of bringing that up for us. <laughs> and, and if you're working with a team of colleagues that you trust, they would be able to do that before it gets to stage four. Whereas if you're working mm -hmm. in isolation um, or, or doing anything in isolation, uh, it, mm -hmm. it wouldn't and be. And mine has. Yes, and mine—that's so certainly been my experience. So I will make sure that um, that the link to your program um, and and sort of the the information about your program is in the show notes. And uh, uh, and, and is there any way that uh, anything that you'd like to maybe tell the audience, maybe how to contact you or find out more about what you're doing, Doctor Kid? Um, I can. Uh... Well, I can, I can mention that we have a, a, a walk-in intake every Wednesday at 1 o'clock uh, at the Colorado Springs Clinic up there on the third floor. Um, and that's the quickest and easiest way to get a hold of it, or any eligible that or eligible that, that family member to come get a hold of us. Uh, sometimes the veteran's not ready to come in, but the family members sure are. And... Um, we can see family members as well once the eligibility is established. So um, uh, that's the primary way that I usually uh, talk to folks about making contact with us. Um, I, uh, we're at, uh, I can give my uh, phone number, my extension after the A is 719-327-5660. Uh, uh, and then I'm extension 44125. Uh, folks have follow-up questions. Um, I may be referring you to one of my staff members who specializes in that particular area, but uh, happy to talk with folks. Like I said, I'll make sure that all that contact information is uh, is posted for any listeners. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today, Dr. Kidd. Well, 
Dwayne, thanks again for putting this together. It's uh, it's a great service, and um, it's obviously bearing fruit. So thanks for taking the time to listen to that episode with Dr. Stephen Kidd talking about federal mental health and substance abuse. You can find the show notes on this show and many of the things we talked about at either changerpov.com or veteranmentalhealth.com looking for episode HST030. This is the sixth episode of the Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp, a series brought to you by the Change Your POV Podcast Network and the Headspace and Timing Podcast. If you're a veteran or service member, the family member of one, or support veterans in any way, then this series is designed to help you understand more about veteran mental health. If you're just now getting into the series, go back and check out episode HST025, where we introduce the concept of looking beyond PTSD and TBI in regards to veteran mental health. Make sure you subscribe to the Change Your POV podcast network on your podcast player of choice and sign up for updates at changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. We would love to hear your feedback regarding this series and all of the shows in the Change Your POV podcast network. You can do so by visiting our Facebook group, leaving a comment, or review on iTunes. Remember, veteran mental health and wellness is the basis of a successful post-military life and one that all who answered our nation's call to serve deserves. Remember, brothers and sisters, you're not alone, ever. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.